0: Another day, another dollar, makes you wonder where you're, you're Hi folks, this is it's Jack here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one to do with the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, come on today with episode 386 of the Survival Podcast. But today we're going to talk about fishing. Uh, We're not going to talk about uh, fishing in a $20,000 bass boat and uh, trying to win tournaments. Uh, We're not going to talk about running uh, downriggers on a big southern lake looking for large striped bass. We're going to talk about fishing as a strategy for self-sufficiency, for modern survivalism, and for um, sustainability uh, as part of your protein supply. We're going to talk about doing it intelligently how to get maximum bang for the buck with fishing. Uh, this is something I've done my whole life. I mean, I, uh, from the time I could tie my shoes, I was learning how to tie a fishing hook. I had to learn a lot of things on my own because uh, during at least a very young part of my life when I was such a big thing for me in Florida, my dad was a workaholic and uh, we were away from all the relatives up in uh, Pennsylvania because we were down in Florida for about 10 years and uh, I had to learn these things myself. But, when you learn things yourself, sometimes you actually learn them better. And uh, then over the years, of course, I spent a lot of time traveling and uh, fishing with people all over the country. And I picked up a variety of techniques. And I'm going to share some of those with you today. Some of them are going to be, um, let's say, you know, the, the highly technical techniques. The things that you can do uh, with traditional fishing gear to maximize uh, your catches, especially certain species of fish that you can do that with. And some are going to be, let's say, uh, low-tech techniques, uh, things like uh, jug fishing, uh, trot lining, and other techniques like limb lining that may not be legal in all areas. So i have to tell you now in advance to make sure that you verify the legality of anything I tell you today uh, in your state before you try it, because I can't tell you what the law in your state is. That's up to you. Now, before we uh, we get into that topic, let's take care of our housekeeping today. Housekeeping item number one. As always, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one, the Lifesaver 4000 water bottle, which was inspired by its creator when he was part of the relief efforts during the tsunami in Indonesia that looked and saw one of the biggest things people were lacking. There was clean water, even though there was water everywhere. Purifying it was difficult. Uh, So he came up with this system, which filters down to .015 microns. That means it actually can filter out bacteria and viruses. Um, You can get the Lifesaver 4000 from our great sponsor, Ready-Made Resources. You'll find a banner for it on our website. Check it out. Uh, I think it might be something you want to add to your preps. Next up today is our newest sponsor, Common Sense Prep. Common Sense Prep is exactly what it sounds like. Great items and great resources for the prepper who is not concerned with maybe the end of the world, but making sure that you're prepared as best you can to live that better life. At times get tough, or even if they don't, just like we say every day here at the Survival Podcast, they have a great assortment of stuff. One of the things they have is a rain harvesting thing called the, uh, the H2O hog, and I think you really should check out the water hog there. It looks pretty cool, uh, and it's an expandable system, very easy to install, and they've got a lot of other great things. With that, let's move on. I want to remind everybody, we do have a new website out there that's um, part of our community, kind of as a PR movie. We're just getting off the ground. It's called SaveOurSkills.com. Again, SaveOurSkills.com. If you go to the website, TheSurvivalPodcast.com, uh, now where we have all the show notes and everything else, you'll see uh, about halfway down a great big, really cool black and gold badge that says Save Our Skills on it, uh, that Sister Wolf designed for us. And all Save Our Skills is, is a website featuring traditional American skill sets that are being lost, things like fishing, right, how to build a rabbit hutch, so both modern and ancient skill sets. Because a lot of the things that we, we look at and go, that's pretty modern, are, are really relatively old, things from, you know, maybe things that people could have done from the 50s onward. And today, if it's not on a Macintosh or a PC, a lot of kids aren't learning how to do it. And what are, what are we going to have for skills if we don't preserve them in another generation? So from making fire to making a good backup uh, a USB drive that's bootable and not relying on a hard drive, and everything in between. That's what Save Our Skills is about. How do you participate in Save Our Skills? You have to join our forum. Get on our forum and write a good little article. Include some pictures, because that really helps, on how to do something traditional. Uh, take one of your do-it-yourself projects and break it down with some photos and some text. And uh, then let me know that you want to submit your article. Or if you see somebody else's great article on how to do something on our form, let me know. We'll feature it on Save Our Skills person to read a snip of it on that website, and then to read the rest of it or participate in the discussion, they have to come to our forum. We think this is really an innovative way to do things. It came from sort of from a suggestion from a listener. It came up with the concept of saving our skills, um, but the evolution of the, of the plan really came from me and, and Tiffany, and we think that this is going to be maybe an innovative thing we'll see a lot of forum owners doing over the next few years, and we're kind of a first on it. Right. So we, we'd like your support to help make it successful. Again, the website is saveourskills.com, or just just getting it off the ground, but I'd love you to become a contributor. Uh, next up today, um, make sure that you check out our gear shop. I just mentioned Tiffany. She's done a great job with designing shirts, and we've got some other cool stuff coming and challenge coins. Uh, first order of challenge coins sold out. I think the second one should be in soon. I'm waiting on a bunch of them this time so I can uh, maybe give one or two out at some events and all, but don't wait for me to give you one. Uh, they're really one of the coolest things. Uh, that we could ever possibly offer. So check those out as well. Last but not least consider joining the member support brigade. to get exclusive content available only to members. Let me put it to you in a cut and dry financial statistic for your first year. 50 bucks to support the show for a year. That's about $0.20 cents an episode to support the work I do here. Um, in return, the first two benefits that you'll get is a lifetime uh, discount membership to Save Castle Royal. Which gives you huge discounts on everything that they sell. That membership would cost you $29 if you bought it, and it would be a great value. But you don't have to buy it. You get it for free. You will also get a membership from uh, Western Botanicals for all their herbals in their preferred membership uh, system. If you bought that membership, it's $50 a year. So year one, there's $79 in value just in two discount memberships that you get for free. For a $50 contribution for the show. Plus you get discounts to, uh, 13 other vendors now, including like 7% from Shelf Reliance and, uh, it's the SelfSufficientLife.com because you half off all their ebooks. You get 20 videos that are only for members. You can't get them anywhere else. Uh, and you get a whole bunch of free ebooks valued at over $100. So I usually don't talk this long on Members Brigade, but hey, I want you guys to realize how much value there really is there. Alright. Let's go ahead and move on to the main topic today, and let's talk about fishing. And let's talk about fishing first in the way that most people think of it that don't go out and fish. Um, odds are you watch TV, and occasionally you'll put a fishing show on And Generally, most people that aren't fishermen can't watch these shows for very long, but occasionally they pause to just see what's this fishing thing all about. You see a guy running around in a boat that he's got maybe thirty or $40,000 into, sometimes more. And you're driving a car that's worth of half of what this guy's boat is. You think fishing's not for me financially. He goes all over the place and, uh, he catches these big green fish with big mouths called largemouth bass. And that's what you see mostly on TV. I don't want to put everybody down or anything, but that's, that's the number one fish caught on national television today, on their fishing shows, uh, cable TV and satellite TV, is largemouth bass. Pulls the big bass up out of the water, looks at it, woo-wee, look at that. Throws it back in the water to let it get bigger, when it already looked pretty daggone big. And what you may be thinking is, the guy's got like $40,000 a pound into that fish, and he still didn't eat it. So what is this guy going to eat? And the answer is, he's probably not going to eat anything. Because you're watching a professional bass fisherman, or when I say professional, I mean they earn their living off of these fish, And they've created great fisheries for this fish throughout our country. And I actually really admire them. So don't take anything I'm saying about them the wrong way because they've dedicated their life to something they love and they have a passion for. And in doing so, they've created a wonderful amount of habitat by funding it with all these great programs and donations and sponsorships throughout our country. And a lot of lakes that would just be sitting there as water collection because of people that do that type of fishing, have been managed for fish habitat. Now, here's the the benefit that we get out of that, even if we're not that bass fisherman, And if you are, don't take anything negative, don't take any of the stuff that I'm going to say negative about you. Because in a lot of ways, a lot of the places that are out there now, for people like me to go catch white bass uh, and channel catfish and other fish that I consider more of a table fair, um, and uh, folks I don't don't care if it upsets anybody, I'll eat largemouth bass too. I just generally spend my time on more productive food species. But because of the bass fishermen and the impact they've made on our lakes from Florida you know, to Washington and from Maine down to California, there's all this other great fish habitat that's out there because you can't create exclusively largemouth bass habitat. When you build a lake, you create habitat in it, you create habitat for all the fish. So the first thing we need to do is get that whole concept that that's what fishing is or that's what it takes to be successful as a fisherman out of our heads. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. There's a, there's an old man that I see occasionally when I, uh, go to Joe Pool Lake. Pretty much all summer long, he sets up at this little hole on a little feeder creek that comes into the lake. He goes there with his light. He goes there every night and he fishes till late at night and then he goes home. And this guy catches catfish after, catfish after catfish after catfish after catfish. And his entire setup is a light, a radio, his little old car to drive there. He probably buys the, the annual pass to the park for a hundred dollars a year. So he's got that's probably his biggest investment, a couple old fishing poles. That's it. And there are a lot of ways you could do more with less, but he enjoys that. So that's that's kind of the other extreme. A guy doesn't even own a boat. I do think a boat is something to consider if you're a serious fisherman and I think you should spend some time examining your local bodies of water to determine what you need, uh, for, with a boat before you buy it. But what I like to start with is focusing on, well, what makes fishing a valid method of adding protein to your diet? Where you wouldn't be better off just going down to Kroger's or, you know, Albertsons or wherever and just buy and fish. Well, the first thing that you have to have for this, obviously, is species that are locally available. So it doesn't do me good, a lot of good, to tell you how wonderful um, a, a food species a fish like whiting are for me, even though it's it's a five-hour drive down to the Texas coast. But if you don't live anywhere near the coast and there's not whiting available, then that that species doesn't really maybe maybe hit a high value for you. But if you live in coastal regions, you're lucky. There's probably a lot that can be done with pier fishing and surf fishing uh, that's extremely inexpensive and a really good way to, to, to uh, branch out and add uh, more, more fish species than the, the person that's landlocked. But what I want you to understand is whiting is one example, but I may be talking today about crappie. Uh, and white bass, you might not have them in your area. So just because I say a species is something that's highly advantageous, I'm trying to make a point that that doesn't mean it's highly advantageous for you. What you need to do is look for similar species that are locally available. Because if you have to travel long distances, and even for me, five-hour drive, that's you know going to be ten hours in the vehicle down and back, and you're burning up a lot of gas. But, hey, if I go spend a weekend on the beach camping out, and I come back with a cooler full of fish uh, because they're a fish that has no limit uh, and they have high food value, and I can then preserve them, uh, through a variety of processes such as, uh, smoking or canning, then I've, I've kind of had a net gain. A much bigger net gain for me though is to follow my own advice on what's locally available. Joe Pool Lake, 10 minutes from my house. In that lake, uh, probably the easiest species of fish, to catch year-round with very little uh, ability. I mean, you have to be a great fisherman to do this. You have to know a few spots and work a few spots out, is white bass. And I learned just about everything I know in that lake about fishing for white bass from a friend of mine who's a guide on that lake who I hired and said, hey, I, I want you to teach me the lake. And he did a good job of that, and I took that kind of to the next level on my own. So I can go out there, uh, with the exception of like January and February when it's just too cold personally, I don't want to be out there and I can catch white bass. But, for that to happen, I've got to take my boat with me. So now you have to also look at what are your, what are your means, so to speak? Do you have a boat? And do the species, because, so, let's say you lived right next to me but you didn't have a boat and you financially didn't think it was a good idea to invest in a boat right now, even a little John boat like mine that, you know, I've got maybe a thousand dollars into everything. So you have to stick, when you say locally available for fishing, it's not just available to people in your area, but is it available to you? So you want to hone in first on the species that, based on what you have available to you and where you live are available. Now, I don't Think that that sounds very revolutionary, but you'd be surprised at how many people are focused on catching species of fish that are difficult for them to come by either because of where they live or because of the means that they have with which to acquire them. The next thing you need to look at is if you're going to be subsistence fishing, you want fish that, how do I put this, are a little bit dim. You want fish that are easily caught when it comes to something like white bass and even things like channel catfish uh and crappie. Crappie has a little bit more, actually a lot more finesse to it, but it still comes down to if you can locate them, you can catch them and you can catch them in abundance. So you want fish that, you know, generally are not the finicky uh, fish that highly skilled fishermen need to go after. Example, I love to fish for trout. Uh, specifically brown trout, rainbows, and brookies, all throughout this country, wherever they're available. In a lot of places, the, the fish that are available aren't very large, and you start fishing small streams and things like that. There's a lot of finesse. I would, I would take people fishing for trout in Pennsylvania when I lived there, and we would go through, a, you know, once you got the, the what they called the stockies, which are the ones they just throw in every year for you to catch out of the big, deep pools, uh, and once that kind of went away and all the, you know, the Saturday fishermen left and people had to actually work for the fish, You take somebody and you'd say, you see that little pocket right there, the way the water's swirling behind that rock, If and you'd have them try to cast, and they try to cast, and they get to the point where they get frustrated with you and say, there's no way there's a fish there, I've been all over it. And then you go in and you you, make a skilled cast because you've been doing it your whole life, and you drop it, you let it come right through there just the right way, and bam, and you pull that fish out. It's great. It's wonderful to master a technique that way. And it's an amazing sport. And to be able to read water that way is outstanding. And let's be honest, in a wilderness survival situation where eating one or two times more might save your life, hey, it's a valuable skill. But for subsistence fishing like we're talking about today, it's almost meaningless. Because even a limited trout... Uh, in, in most states, I think they're pretty good about the trout they stock in Arkansas, actually, as far as size. But they're relatively small fish. They have low bag limits. And a hard day's work is going to put maybe one meal on the table. Now, if I'm going to do a hard day's work, I can put a lot more than one meal on the table. So what we're looking for, then, are fish that are easily captured And we're also looking for what are called high bag limits. So you're looking for fish where your limits are 12 or more. And some fish have limits as high as uh, 25. Some fish have no limit whatsoever. If you can find a place, and it's difficult to do really, where you can catch large bluegill, which are sunnies, sunfish, sun perch, but bluegill is really what we're talking about with a proper name. Um, You know, the the kids catch it all the time with little pieces of worm and they're little tiny fish. Well, those fish grow up to be 7, 8, 9, 10 inches long. And a 10-inch bluegill is a sizable fish. And if you can find a place where larger bluegill are, you've got a gold mine. Because as long as you have some of your own self-defined limits to how many fish you're willing to take and uh, allowing the the population to be sustainable, which bluegill, honestly, are very difficult to fish down. Because they reproduce so rapidly, they actually need to be fished out. They also need to be culled. Some of their smaller fish need to be culled, and some of the larger fish need to be cold to keep a bluegill fishery healthy. If you have that, then you have an easy-to-catch and highly, highly valuable food source in bluegill. And then the other thing about them is most states have no limit on how many to keep. Some have a limit of maybe 50, which I don't want to clean any more than 50 fish in one day anyway. So you want that high back limit. You also want to start thinking about how you can learn to catch multiple species. So even though I'm saying focus on something that's locally available to you and hone in on that species, I'm not saying one. So when I go to Joe Poole, for instance, to fish here locally, and I don't want to make myself out to be like this a super badass fisher because I'm not that great. I can just usually come home with a live well full of fish anytime that I go out because I have multiple options that I follow. One of the things that I'll do is I have some places that I know at different times of the year are good places to hit for catfish. And here's a technique that I'm saying you got to check on legality where you live. It is completely legal to chum in Texas. In Pennsylvania, if a game warden caught me chumming, he would take away my boat and my fishing poles and give me a great big ticket and possibly take me to jail, maybe. Probably not, but at least I'm going to get my stuff taken away from me and a ticket. Right? Um, but in Texas, this is totally acceptable, so I'll take, um, when I go out and I fish for, let's say, uh, white bass and uh, catfish and any other fish, and I fillet them, I bring them home to fillet them, it's easier to do, and I break up the uh, kind of the leftover pieces of them and uh, I process those into a, basically a fish meal. And I put those into little tubs, it's uh, like uh, not tubs, uh, one-gallon uh, plastic uh, Ziploc bags, and I freeze them. And I'll take one or two of those with me in my boat, and um, you just pop them open, and when they're like that, they'll sink straight to the bottom, and they'll slowly defrost. Well, I'll drop one or two of those in a pocket. Or I'll get some commercially available fish chum if I don't have any of that available to me. And I'll put that in an area where channel cats uh, generally congregate. And I'll go fish for white bass for maybe an hour or two. And then I'll come over and I'll fish that spot and see if that chumming action has brought any channel cats in. And a lot of times I'll kind of jump back and forth. As the bite slows down with the white bass, I'll move over to channels and then I'll try another spot. Uh, because my boat's slow, I have to limit the range that I have to travel. But I sure have a lot more options than a person on the shore. And if you start doing that and start thinking about how I can accommodate multiple species, then you start to increase the bag limit, limit even more. So I can go out and if on a perfect day, doesn't happen very often, but on a perfect day, I could come back with 25 white bass and 12 catfish. And that's fishing completely alone. If I had uh, a partner with me, we could go out there and come back with 50 white bass and 24 catfish. So understanding how to combine the highly available species in your area and bounce in between habitat, because generally you're not going to find a lot of channel cats with white bass, and you're not going to find a lot of white bass with channel cats. Though there's even some places where the edges overlap. I always talk about edges with permaculture, and one of the spots I catch a lot of catfish with, sometimes we'll see surface action from white bass, just pull up, run over, hit them while they're on the surface, and go right back. So, There's a lot of things you can do if you learn the techniques in your area. The next thing, though, is to start thinking creatively beyond boat fishing and bank fishing and start considering alternative techniques that allow you to really maximize things. Again, you got to check your state legalities for some of the things I'm about to tell you. But one very effective technique is called jug fishing. And jug fishing can be as simple as saving up some one-gallon milk jugs, uh, making sure that the lid's on there so it's not going to come off. You get a piece of tarred line is probably the best to use for this. And tie, you know, a string that will hang down off of that jug. Put a, a weight on the bottom and maybe one or two hooks coming off, maybe one about a foot off the bottom and maybe one about five feet off the bottom. How I put my jug lines together is I tie uh, an overhand loop, just a loop that will stand off. And if you use tarred line, when you tie that loop, It'll it'll stand off. And what I mean is if you've got your line going vertically up and down, that loop will stick out horizontally even underwater. That's why I like tarb line. And at the end of that, I'll put a swivel. And at the end of that, I'll put a piece of monofilament fishing line uh, with a what's called a kale hook. And a kale hook, uh, you can look them up online, but they're a wide gap hook. And what they're designed to do is they're designed to, to, to not have to be set. So when you think of fishing and the guy gets a bite and he jerks it, these hooks are designed so if the fish takes it and starts to just kind of pull away with the bait, it just kind of naturally circles up in into uh, in set the hook. That or the large standard style hooks, either one will work. I like kales for this. And um, that's, a, that's really for catching catfish. You may occasionally catch some other fish with it. Most states, even where it's legal and you go back and there's a bass, you got to let them go, right? It's not designed for fishing for bass. But what happens is you set this jug out there with a weight on the bottom and a couple bait hooks, and you go set maybe 10 of these or 20 of these out there. So now you've got something working for you. It's like trapping for fish is the best way I can describe it. And once you get done setting them, you kind of just back off and watch them. Now, your boat's not in the area making noise. The the jug's a lot more patient than you. If you start seeing a jug bobbing, you run out, pick up your jug, pull your fish off of it, reset it, and go back. The jugs that don't have any activity whatsoever, eventually you move them until you find highly active areas for all of your jugs. And a lot of people will run as little as six jugs and they still catch a tremendous amount of uh, catfish and, and sometimes gar, which is another fish that's usually legal to catch that way. So that's one technique I really recommend that you look into and learn a lot about. As it, hillbilly as it sounds, and God knows a hillbilly figured out how to do this, it's, it's very, very effective. It's also a technique that I'll sometimes use out on one of my lakes uh, for combo fishing. So what I'll do is I'll find kind of a, a good spot to fish for, let's say, white bass again. And I'll look from there and I'll look for the shoreline and I'll look for a place with my uh, my, my depth fighter and try to find a spot that looks like a good place for catfish. And maybe instead of setting 20 jugs out, I go set six jugs out. And I'll go fish. And I can kind of, kind of see my jugs while I'm fishing for white bass. And I'll just bounce back and forth. And that way I'm actively fishing two spots at the same time. So I think... Uh, that's another highly valuable way to start combining techniques. Additionally, on top of that, I think one of the things that you really need to look at, especially if you live in an area where there's a lot of streams and creeks, is a technique called limb lining. And limb lining is something that probably every kid that's ever tried fishing has done at some time and didn't even know he was doing limb lining, and therefore he may not have done it completely correctly. But limb lining, what you're looking for is a green limb it's strong, you know, big enough that it can ha- handle the weight of a heavy fish that is available for you to, uh, to use basically as a fishing pole over top of a creek bank. And you put a, a certain length of line long enough to, to reach the area that you want to off of that line into, uh, into the creek or into, the, you know, whatever body of water is. But usually this is a, this is a creek technique or very small river technique, because you need trees close to the bank. And uh, you tie that line on. You, you bait your your line for whatever species you're after. And you leave it alone. And what happens is, since that 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 branch is flexible, when the when the, the target species fish takes the bait and pulls away, many times that flexibility of that green stem will just kind of give until it gets tighter and tighter, and that fish will hook himself. And since it gives, right, he can't break the line. He can't get away. And you will usually hold. All but occasionally you get a really larger fish than the uh, equipment or the branches you had available. Occasionally you come back to a broken line, but most of the time it tends to work very well. Here's a mistake I see people make when they, I've seen videos on this of people how to limb line. They go find a great sapling uh, for limb lining. They find it somewhere in the middle of the woods. They cut it down with a machete, and then they take it and they drive it into the bank uh, along the side of the creek, and they use it that way, and that can work. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying it's a far less effective method than simply finding something that's already there that's growing and trimming the top of it and using it because now it's anchored with its root system. Because what I've seen happen to people that do this is that branch, if the fish happens to go a certain way and the angle's right, that branch just pulls straight out and the fish takes off downstream with the uh, with the branch, where if it's rooted in the ground, that's not going to happen. You might have to rely on that. There's nothing wrong with that technique. It's just not kind of my first choice. That's another technique to look at and learn. Uh, one more uh, concept with limb lining before I go on. And again, this is, a, this is a technique you've got to verify validity in your area. One of the things that we'll do with limb lining on occasion when we're looking for large calves, especially things like... Uh, very large species called flathead cats, is we'll get uh, live bluegill or live perch or any kind of sunfish uh, or any kind of baitfish species that's native to the, the body of water we're in. Uh, and I'm Generally, I use sunfish for this because they're a little bit hardier than a lot of the shiners and shad and other things that will die quickly in this technique. Uh, we'll get one pretty big, I mean, maybe four inches, maybe six inches, fairly large, and a, a big hook, and this you got to have heavy line and a heavy limb for this to work, because you're talking about a very large predator species fish you're after. And you hook that bait fish just behind the back dorsal fin. The dorsal fin the one that runs along the back, uh, just underneath there and above the spine. You don't ever, if you hit the spine, you kill your, your bait. And you run the line just long enough to be maybe, when it hits the water, maybe six, eight, maybe ten inches deep. And you're looking for a deep hole when you do this. And then what happens is that little sunfish starts swimming. And as he gets out further away and k- creates greater angle in that line, he gets closer and closer to the surface. And he as get, he gets out to the very edge of, of the line's limitations, he gets straight to the surface. And when that happens, his natural instinct is to try to struggle. And he'll come across the top of the surface and splash. And he'll maybe swim another way and he'll splash. And he's like doing that constantly. And what happens is that fish looks like a, an injured animal in distress, and to be fair to the poor little guy, basically he is, and this is like ringing the dinner bell for large predator species. So you do that in a few holes, and hopefully sometime, especially with uh, catfish during the evening, you come back and find a very large channel cat, or a very large... Uh, flathead catfish, or maybe in some areas a large uh, blue cat uh, that, that's taken that, or some other large predator species, hopefully it's legal to be har- harvested in that manner. Because, again, just because the like, technique's legal doesn't mean it's legal for all species of fish. I leave that to you uh, for your own determination in your own state where you, you're operating. But that's a great technique for catching large catfish. I think about catching, uh, things like big flatheads. Flatheads, unlike channels and blues, when they're very, very large, they're still exceptionally eating. Channel cats, especially, I I like them about 24 inches down to about 16 inches. I find it to be about the perfect size. Anything much bigger than 26, 28 inches, I'm generally turning back as a breeder because they get so much fat in their flesh that they just don't have as good a clean taste any longer. But flatheads, you can catch a 100 pound flathead catfish and, uh, you can get about probably about 50, 60 pounds of good quality uh, meat by the time you throw the head out and the guts and the and the, and the the bones and everything, you end up with about a 60% yield on these larger cats. But 60 pounds of catfish meat uh, going at the store for five ninety nine a pound for fillets, and that one fish is $300 into your freezer uh, or into uh, the smoker, so to speak, so... These are the species that make sense to me in my area. Again, I want you to think about your area and what makes sense to you. The other thing is to think about what other things can you gather as food while you're fishing. One of the things we used to do uh, is go out and fish for catfish. We'd fish in the evenings, and we'd run jug lines. Well, while we were doing that, we'd hear, and they're bullfrogs, right? Well, if frogs are legal game, have a season or whatever methodology, while you're running jug lines, you can go out and gather frogs for frog legs. If you've never eaten frog legs, and if this sounds like some, you know, a less drought thing or something where they're biting heads off of stuff, trust me, frog legs are good. Uh, people say they taste just like chicken. They absolutely do not taste just like chicken. They have a similar chickenish type, but to me, they're more of a fish tasting item in a good way. Uh, they're excellent um, sauteed and they're excellent fried. And usually the best way to catch them, if it's, again, legal in your area and there's maybe seasons and bag limits you have to be aware of, but it's with a good frog gig. A little four-pointed uh, trident spear on the end of a pole and we would just cruise around and shine a bright flashlight and hit their eyes and they kind of, you know, stay put. And you, you look for, you know, you don't want to take the little ones. You look for larger ones and, you know, you stab them and into the live while well, they go. Now you have... Not only an additional protein source, but if you clean them, you have a source of chum or bait. Again, if that's legal where you are. Again, certain places it's legal to gig frogs. It's not legal to do it at night with a light. Some places it's completely acceptable. Uh, some places you can only do it the day, during the daytime. Some places they're probably protected. Uh, there's a lot of places where you have states where it's completely okay to do it, but not within the state parks. So all of these things you have to verify yourself, but starting to stack things. Um, I have a good friend up in Maine. Whenever he goes fishing, uh, he fishes at a place that's just loaded with big, beautiful freshwater mussels. The water's completely clean. They're totally safe to eat. Not all shellfish are safe to eat. So again, you have to verify this for yourself. But he goes out there and he fishes, and he, uh, when he comes back, he doesn't just come back with a pile of fish. He comes back with a pile of freshwater mussels as well. So all of these types of situations, you need to be looking at how you can maximize um, your food harvest. While you're fishing, it's not always with fish. There may be places where you can gather things uh, like duck potato. Or down in the very far south, places where things like taro have moved in and become invasive, and you can harvest taro root. So you can combine foraging with fishing. Uh, during certain times of the year, maybe you can combine fishing and hunting if it's legal where you are, uh, where you can maybe hunt um, from a canoe and hunt predators like raccoons. And I know some people say, eat a raccoon. Well, again, folks, I've eaten raccoons, pretty good stuff, and there are places where there's, you know, something legal to hunt almost year-round. Uh, a perfect example is people that, that fish, and not up here in Dallas where it's all disgusting, but certain branches and parts of the Trinity, and the Brazos rivers, and they float fish them, and they take guns with them, and what they're looking for are feral hogs, which are very common in, in, in the very remote riverbanks, and it's a great way to harvest hogs. So now you got a guy out there that's looking for a, a variety of fish species, but he also has the opportunity maybe to come home with 100 pounds of pork. And, of course, there's no close season on feral hogs in the state of Texas. Again, you have to take your state and judge against your state, whether or not you can do these things. The next technique I want to talk to you about real quick is called trot trotlining. Uh, and, and I want to be very clear with this because this is the one where people tend to sound a little bit foolish. They call it a trout line. It is not a trout line, T-R-O-U-T, trout like the fish. It is a trot, like a dog trots down the, the, the street or a horse trots around the track, a trot line. Uh, a trot line is basically just a great big long strong line with multiple lines hanging off, it's spaced out in a way that they won't move and become tangled with each other. And there's some pretty cool gear to do this with now that I made. There's these very quick-releasing clips, and the clip holds the monofilament down, and there's a, you know, a hook at the end of it that's baited, and you can very quickly just squeeze the clip and remove it from the, the main line. Uh, and what I see people doing with these is they're running their lines as they keep a bunch of those baited, and when they go out to run their line... They just grab the clip that's on there and they pull it up out of the water and usually the bait's either gone or there's a fish on it. There's a fish on it. They judge, you know, they call it out. If it's too small, they throw it back right size into the into the bucket it goes. And then they have a pre-baited line they just throw right back on. It's a very, very effective way to do that. Uh, or you can build your own trot lines and, you know, you can tie and, and pull them up. But I like those quick releases. If I ever do any trot line again, I'm going to start using them. Uh, because nothing's worse than out there trying to untangle things and deal with problems. One of the big things I say with trot lines, just like drug, ju- uh, drug lines, jug lines is somewhere between where that, you know, that hook and the main line are, and you have that joining piece of line, monofilament usually, because you don't want thick, heavy tar line right up against the hook. It makes fish more uh, sensitive to just taking it, biting it, and hooking themselves. Uh, you want a swivel. I don't care if it's just a swivel you put on with split rings or a snap swivel. But when I say swivel, I mean something that can turn. And they're available. at any place you buy fishing here, you find all types of swivels. The reason you want that, especially with a species like catfish, if you've ever watched these wildlife shows where you see a guy with a, a crocodile or an alligator, they put a noose on him, and as soon as that, that, that gator knows he's caught, he starts doing what they call a death roll. He starts spinning. Catfish, once they're hooked and they realize they can't go anywhere, they have a tendency to spin. If you don't have a swivel in there, they start twisting and twisting and twisting that line. When you're fishing, it's not a big deal because you're reeling them in. Uh, so it's, it's mitigated. But if they're out there on a jug or they're out there on a trot line doing that for a long time, or out there on a limb line, I also recommend swivels for that, and they start doing that twisting, eventually they weaken the line, and even though it's a line they normally could have broken, they do break it. They also tend to tangle everything the hell up. So the first time I built jug lines, I just t- tied the monofit filament directly to the card uh, line. And when I went out there, I either had broken lines or one little catfish completely tangled and totally ruined that line. I had to completely replace the line. It was more trouble than it was worth it. And real quick, I snapped to, hey, let's start using swivels. Not only will we increase our catch, but we'll we reduce damage to our equipment. All right, the next thing I want to talk to you today about is what if you had a perfect little spot to fish that really kind of was your little honey hole that no one else knew about, and uh, there was some structure there that brought the fish in, and those fish were always you know hanging out around that structure because it was perfect structure, but it was a piece of structure that, I don't know, nobody else could seem to find even with a depth finder, um, Wouldn't that be cool? And sooner or later, somebody might find it, but they would find it by luck, and it wouldn't be like a well-known spot, and you could create this little oasis of fish-drawing cover and keep it all to yourself. What's the secret to this? PVC pipe. PVC pipe has a density that's very, very close to water, and structures built with PVC pipe don't tend to show up very well on a depth finder because the depth finder works by looking for differences in density. So it sends out this pulse, and that pulse hits the water, and it sees water is a certain density. And anything with a greater density or a, a, a less of a density tends to create a different reflection, and that's how it shows up as an object on a depth finder. So if you build structures out of PVC pipe, they're very difficult, if not impossible, uh, to find. And what people tend to do is they build tree systems out of PVC pipe and then maybe take a five-gallon bucket, put the bottom of it in there, and fill it up with concrete, let it harden, and then they drop those things into water. Again, in certain areas, this is highly illegal because you're dumping trash. And it's not really trash, but some states would see it that way. Uh, on private bodies of water, of course, you can pretty much do whatever you want as long as there's no toxic chemicals, and there's no toxic chemicals when you do this. But the reason people like PVC, especially if you stick, stick to uh, using smaller sticks of it and building, like, long, uh, like, like a center column and a bunch of stuff branching out, is if you're jigging for something like crappie, and people do this for crappie all the time, it's an attractive technique. A lot of times the hook won't snag on, on the PVC pipe. It'll just kind of bounce and go around it. So you can jig right into your structure. So this is a secret. I'm giving you a secret right now. Uh, and and, and none of them will be upset with me because the only time they really get upset is when you tell people where theirs are, and I don't really know where a lot of them are. But this is a crappie guide secret. What crappie guides will do is they'll go out and they'll build their own, they call them brush piles, but a lot of times instead of building them out of brush, they'll build them out of PVC because it lasts forever, it doesn't snag hooks, and it's very hard for other people to find them. This is an industry secret, guys. And that's one of the ways they do it. There are other things you can do for structure, such as gathering, and this may be a lot more legal where you're at, because you could gather the the materials at the lake or at the stream or at the river, uh, a bunch of branches and things like that, tie them together with some vines and go sink them somewhere. Uh, And then the best thing you can do, you can do it with landmarks. You can say, like, okay, there's that point, and I'm, you know, about 50 feet off of that point. But the best thing you can do is wherever you drop it, uh, get a, even just a cheap little GPS and take grid coordinates uh, so that you know exactly where that object is so you can return to it any time you want. Again, this is a big-time uh, secret of professional guides, that they do things like this all the time and they they're, they're never do it illegally. Guides are the most legal people you'll ever see because their livelihood depends on them never being busted for illegal actions. So where it's legal to dump PVC, they'll put PVC in, but where it's not, they'll use conventional brush piles that they'll build for themselves. Vulnerability is somebody else can find them, but they're not as likely to because they're not the ones that are on the big lake maps that everybody already knows about. So that's one way to create structure. The other way is If you go fish at a place all the time, you're crazy for not creating some structure. And one type of structure that you might create would be primarily based on rocks and boulders. And, again, this is one that's going to be pretty much completely legal wherever you go. But if you go and just kind of create, and you might even be at a lake where it's possible to walk out up to maybe your chest height and place these things in an arrangement, And, and it wouldn't be likely that many people would ever see them. So that's a type of structure, and you can kind of create your own little rock world down there. And any place that you create edges of interaction, it's going to attract bait fish. That's what these structures are always really about. The bait fish use the structure to hide from the predator fish. As more and more bait fish congregate, then the predator fish move into that cover to predate on the bait fish. And that's how the entire uh, biological mechanism of freshwater and saltwater fishing works anyway. But what you're doing is creating basically an artificial reef. There's another thing you can do uh, that's that's really kind of clever. A lot of fish like gravel bottoms. So if you have access to cheap or or freely available gravel, uh, you can just basically keep dumping a bucket in the same area over and over and over again until you accumulate a little oasis of a gravel bottom. Uh, And that will often attract things like white bass in deeper water. It would be difficult to do, but it's something definitely that could be done. Uh, But in a lot of places, what you can do with that is if you put enough gravel down, Uh, A lot of the uh, vegetation that typically grows won't grow well where the gravel is. It grows in silt, and it grows in mud, and it grows in muck. So instead of having all that nice open mud and muck to grow in, a lot of the water plants will be suppressed, not stopped, but suppressed by that gravel spot. You create openings in your weed lines. Additionally, as long as you're in a place where it's okay to do, especially on a private body of water, you can go into these big weed beds, uh, that grow during the summertime and cut out a large portion of the weed bed and create kind of a pocket, a hole inside the weeds. And that's because now you can actually get in there and fish and you have a lot of species kind of hanging on that edge and you've created another edge. There's all types of things you can do that way. Again, you have to look at the legalities and the law and the ramifications of doing them in your area. With that said, nothing I'm talking about doing is in any way harmful to the environment or damaging to the environment. I'm not talking about dropping a stick of dynamite in a fish hole and bringing fish up, or using a poison or a toxin, or throwing an old car in that's going to sit there and rust and break down and cause damage to the ecosystem. We're talking about natural substances or things with such a long shelf life, they don't do any damage like PVC. Uh, So there's a lot of things that can be done like that. Big chunks of PVC, uh, four-inch pipe, uh, bolted together uh, to make kind of like, let's say, four pieces uh, then three, then two, then one, like a pyramid, and sink that in an area that's highly populated with panfish like bluegill. And and that's just an amazing draw for those fish. As long as you know where that is, it's going to have uh, a propensity to draw draw the larger fish in that really appreciate that type of cover. So there's, there's all kinds of things that you can do. It's about learning and thinking beyond just going out and throwing line in the water. One of the most advantageous things I think you can do and one of the best investments in your money, if you're going to have, if you have a decent lake around you that's well-known as a fishery, is hire a guide um, for every species of fish that that lake has guides for. So If there's a catfish guide on there, hire him. If there's a bass guide on there, hire him. One of the most effective things you can do where a guide will try of tell you stuff is if you've got a guide on a lake that's a bass guide and he's all into fishing for bass, And you say, I really want to learn to fish this lake for catfish. I'll I'll hire you to take me bass fishing, but tell me the spots to fish for catfish. He'll tell you that because he doesn't care. He probably knows them, but he's not protecting those spots. So that's a good way to get information. You're paying for it, but it's probably an education that's worth ten times what you're paying for. Be honest with guys. Tell them, I want to fish this lake myself. Some guys will tell you, I don't take clients that way. Great, you don't want that guy. You don't want an enemy of a kite on, on any lake. Uh, you want to be above board with these guys, big thing, guys, you hire a fishing guy, tip the guy. If he does a good job for you, even if you don't catch a ton of fish, if he works his ass off for you, give him a tip, that's a big way of how they actually make their living. There's not a lot of money in guiding fishing trips. It seems like a lot of money to you, but by the time they pay for their, their permits, their licenses, their insurance, uh, the, the tax man gets his share, and then they pay for fuel uh, in that boat. And a lot of times they have to spend a lot of time running around the lake to find where the fish are that day. They burn up, you know, 20 gallons of fuel maybe. Uh, There's not a lot of profit left there. So, you know, that 20 at the end of the day or something like that is often uh, the difference between that guy being able to have a six-pack of beer tonight or not. And uh, that's why these guys do this stuff because they love it and they want to live that lifestyle. So, you know, when you book a trip, budget a tip. Now, if the guy sucks, don't give him one. You know, if the guy just doesn't do his job, don't give him one. But his job is not to make sure you catch fish. His job is to work hard to make sure you have the opportunity to catch fish. And nobody, no matter who it is, uh, can guarantee that on a daily basis. Now, I'll say this. Uh, the best guys I've known, if they have a bad day and it was beyond their control, they generally offer you a second trip for free or at a discount. When I've been offered a second trip for free, I've generally taken it. And if we have a good day, I generally tip them about half their rate. And I tell them, just take it. Don't worry about it. Um, Good relationship with guides uh, is tremendously valuable, and just respect kind of their areas that they've put together for themselves, and generally that's not difficult to do. All right, so kind of moving on from there, kind of going into wrap-up mode today. um, What I want to make sure that you take away from this is that fishing doesn't have to be complicated. It can be simple. It can be inexpensive, and it can be affordable. And I can't tell you exactly what to do, or how to make it part of your life in your area. The best source of information that you're going to find about fishing in your area is reaching out into your community and making friends with fishermen uh, that are already there that will share information with you about their areas. Um, often you're going to find that the older men are going to be the ones that are more willing to help out because they're less in that kind of bravado mode of this is my spot or whatever. Guys guy's been fishing a lake for you know, 50 years with his, his parents, he's seen everybody that you can think of come and go out on that lake, and he knows that public water is public water, and it's it's open to everybody. He might not give you away his perfect little honey holes, but he'll tell you some things about the lake. And the big thing was, I think the problem that people have with fishing and trying to, to to get information about where to fish and how to fish is, they shortcut friendships. And I, I think it's a huge mistake and what I mean by that is a person goes out and uh, they meet somebody and they start asking them very in-depth questions about a body of water um, when they really don't even know them yet. And it would be like meeting somebody today and starting to ask them very personal questions about their life before you actually, you know, decided that, hey, this person actually makes a good friend. And people are generally kind of standoffish with that. And that's the same with hunting and learning places to hunt. So if you're lucky, maybe you have some good uh, gun clubs or rotting gun clubs or something like that in your area, and they're a good place to start with that. But don't go in expecting that, like, it's just like going to a chamber commerce mixer. Guys go to these things, especially people start their own business, especially financial advisors or real estate agents. They go into these mixers and they just, like, look for business nonstop instead of seeking relationships. And if you seek relationships, eventually um, the other side of things work themselves out in business and in life. So uh, as you're looking for learning more about areas, there's two ways to really get good information. One is by becoming friends with people and Going out hunting and fishing with people uh, who you would spend time with doing other things. True friends, not friends that are being used for information. Or if you just want the information quickly, the best way to get it is pay for it. Hire a guide. They're professionals. That's what they do. They take people fishing for money. And a lot of times that money is very well spent, especially in bodies of waters that are local to you. And you can get a lot of bang for buck out of a guide, even if it's a body of water you'll never fish before. If you'll take the time to tell the guide, look, I don't just want to fish, I want to learn. I want to understand how you're reading structure. I want to know how you're patterning the fish. I want to know why we're doing what we're doing now. I know we might catch a few less fish today because of that. I'm okay with it. This is part of the experience that I want. They'll be happy to accommodate you, especially when they know you're not local. Because all you're saying is, if I can learn how to read structure on this lake, then I can read structure on my own lake. And most of them will understand that if you'll take the time to explain it to them. So whether it's fishing with a few pockets full of string and limb lining on a stream or getting out in a boat in the middle of a lake, the the process, though, is always the same. You're looking to identify the species that you're looking for. For a person that wants to actually make this part of your diet on a regular basis, you're looking for fish that are highly available uh, with high bag limits and relatively easy to catch once they're located. Once those species are located, it's simply a matter of giving them what they're looking for. A lot of people talk about, well, these fish are smart. Fish are generally not smart. Um, they, They just respond to specific stimuli. And if something looks like food and the fish hasn't eaten recently, he'll generally eat it. But if it doesn't look like food, he won't eat it. So it's not that he's smart. It's just doesn't, the way you're presenting it doesn't look like food to him. It doesn't look natural to him. It doesn't look like something he should eat. But catching fish is actually relatively easy because if you think about it, a fish has to take advantage of any food that comes into uh, his sphere. Because if he doesn't, it may be a long time before he gets an opportunity to eat again. So it's really about location and natural presentation. Uh, and with that, I think I'll go ahead and wrap up today. But I want to encourage you to get out into your local community and explore the opportunities for fishing. I do get some questions from people. I had one today recently came in about what about toxic waters and uh, chemicals and pollution. And I have to tell you, there's not a lot of bodies of water left in the world that aren't polluted on some level. But that's the same true of the air that you breathe every day. The key with fish is you, I don't care how safe they say, uh, fish is to eat. I try to limit my total fish intake to no more than one meal a week, and I think two would be fine, but I definitely wouldn't go higher than that. We have mercury in our fish, uh, whether they're in the ocean or in fresh water. A lot of our fresh waters have been polluted with PA, uh, PCBs. Uh, Some places it's considered enough to issue a warning not to eat the fish. Some it's you know enough to people say no more than one uh, meal every two weeks from fish in this body of water. I, I don't have a good feeling about any of the bodies of water with a warning on them, but uh, there's a lot of water out there that's it's, it's, it's fairly safe and the fish are definitely better for you to consume than the steak the average American is eating uh, off the uh, off the you know the the, the meat uh, the meat counter you know at Kroger that's full of. Uh, you know, antibiotics and and, and drugs and hormones and all the other crap that they pump in there. So is it, it, you know, pristine like it was 500 years ago? No. But understand, some of the things are naturally occurring and have always been there. Uh, A lot of the mercury that's in our water systems isn't there because we threw mercury into the water. It's because it's a naturally occurring substance. So if you limit the intake to a meal a week uh, and use it as a protein source once a week, uh, you're probably not going to have any health problems whatsoever, as long as you also pay attention to places where they say, don't eat the fish from this water, don't eat the fish from that water. You know, unless it's, you know, you're going to die tomorrow if you don't eat today, and, and it's once so that you can make it through because of, you know, some kind of tragic situation, you know, survival situation, maybe I would, I would do that. But that would be the only time that I would ever eat fish from a body of water that our government has even said, don't eat that. All right, so... So do be mindful of that, but don't let it paralyze you from doing this. Last but not least, consider growing your own fish. Just like we can grow our own vegetation and we can, we can grow fruits and nuts and vegetables, we can grow fish. Uh, we can grow fish either uh, from a standpoint of, um, you know, just straight-up uh, aquaculture where we just grow fish, or we can do aquaponics where we grow fish and vegetables together and use each organism to support each other. Really consider doing that. Even something as simple as if you put in, let's say, a tenth of an acre pond on a fairly size, you know, nice piece of land, even a smaller pond than that, you know, a twentieth of an acre. You know, you're talking about the average suburban backyard, a pond like that, will support a very large quantity, especially if you give them supplemental feed, of channel catfish. that You can grow in one season to market size. So consider uh, stocking small ponds or putting in tanks, or doing aquaponics, or anything like that, growing your own fish. Now you have fish that you know is safe to eat, because you know what they've eaten, you've controlled the water that they're given, you've controlled everything about their environment. If you take a process like that, add a little bit of wild fish capture to it, grow your own food, you start to come back to the America, where a man could pretty much feed his family off the land. It's still doable. It's difficult. It's hard. But it doesn't have to be 100%. I think the family that combines all of these things together gardening, permaculture, foraging, fishing, and hunting and combines all of those together to maybe put 40 to 50 percent of their food on the table is going to be healthier, happier, and have a better connection to reality. And they're definitely going to be in a better situation to take care of themselves. If we ever have a really big tragedy. So I know that today wasn't the typical survival podcast because we weren't really talking about preparedness. We were just talking about living. But understand that that's what preparedness is really all about. Living in a sustainable way. And not the sustainable eco-hippie way to try to save the planet, which is a noble goal. Sustainable for you though. See, my big problem with America And my big problem with most people in the world today, in the developed countries, is they're living in a way that's not just unsustainable for the planet, it's unsustainable for themselves. They they, they rely on sources of food and energy that may not always be there, and then they live their life as though they will always be there. That's not sustainable. They live their lives deeply in debt. That's not sustainable. So when I talk about sustainable living, at least today, I'm talking about sustainable for your family. Because if you live sustainably, what that means is that you're prepared for the best outcome whatsoever and you're prepared for the worst outcome whatsoever, as so goes the rest of the world. So if if every gloom and doom prediction is wrong, Gerald Salenti's wrong, Ron Paul's wrong, I'm wrong, everybody's wrong, and you live this way, you will flourish and you will thrive as everybody else does and even more so because you have more control, and you're not caught up in the machine. And if I'm right, or Ron Paul's right, or Gerald Salenti's right, and it's kind of like I'm saying we're going to go down some, and Paul says we're going to go down a lot, and Gerald Salenti says it's the end of all known creation, anywhere in that spectrum, you're better off. That's what I've promised you from this show. If you listen to it, You take the ideas, you make them your own, you don't do what I say. You take what I say and use it to form your own opinions and planning. And you're active in your own life and create that, that you'll have thriving times in good times and bad. Try it. I think it will work for you. This has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't and scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.